Welcome you to Christ Church, whether you're here in person or whether you are joining us online. And thanks to all of you who ventured out in the weather to be here in worship today. It is going to be a great week here at Christ Church. And if you have ideas about what I should dress up as, please help me out. That is not my forte. But I encourage you all to come out and join the fellowship and the fun. It'll be a great time this Wednesday night for everyone of all ages and all abilities. So today, I am wrapping up a series we've been calling our Wesleyan Distinctives. And what we mean by that is, what are the building blocks of our faith? What are the tenets of our theology, or what we might say our understanding of God, that inform how we love God, love others, and live out the gospel life? Now, I want us to remember that John Wesley, who was the founder of the Wesleyan tradition, the Wesleyan movement, never intended to start a new church, never intended to form a new denomination. And you may be thinking, well, Pastor Ryan, how come I to this day hear about all these different denominations and factions and sects and divisiveness and conferences? Well, those things probably terrified John Wesley because John Wesley's intent was to reform the Church of England. Because he, when he looked at the Church of England, he felt that many of their practices had grown stale, for lack of a better word. He felt that there was no conviction behind what it is the people were doing, how they were living out their faith and practice. John Wesley wanted to reform and change and renew the church in a way that felt meaningful, in a way that reclaimed its vitality in the world. In week one, Pastor John talked to us about the unity of faith and works being one of the tenets of Wesleyan theology. In other words, salvation is given to each of us as a free gift. And when we respond and receive that gift in faith, we in turn follow with acts of good deed, acts of goodwill toward others, acts of love and peace to our neighbors. They are not in tension with each other. Week two, last week, Pastor Tony talked about two dimensions of our faith. One is personal holiness, our devotion of God through our worship, through our prayer life, through our searching and studying of the scriptures, but also a social dimension, works of mercy, works of compassion and justice. Are we visiting the prison? Are we visiting those who have been cast out of society? Are we tending to the needs of those who are impoverished or who are hungry? And today we finish this series with another of the hallmarks of what it means to be Wesleyan, and perhaps one that drew me initially to this call to ministry, how our faith expresses a relationship between the heart and the head. In other words, Faith is one thing to be this deep personal conviction in our hearts, but at the same time is also the genuine curiosity we have about who God is, how we understand the ways God is at work in the world around us, and what it means to be humans created in God's image. Now, if you think about it, it's pretty amazing that we can talk about faith from these two different angles. But it shouldn't be news to us. For you may recall when Jesus is asked what is the greatest commandment in Matthew's gospel, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your 
soul, and all your mind. And so he draws upon those three things and says, this is how you should not only love the Lord, but how that should inform the way you act and treat one another in this world. Now, what does it look like to think about how faith is informed by the head and the heart? Well, I'll give you an example. Many of you have found yourself in a place at one point or another where you've decided we are going to look for a new church home. And many factors inform how you make that decision, many things that you consider and look into. Do they have a robust kids' ministry where I can send my children? Do they have a weekday school program where I can send my child during the week while I'm at work? Will people stare at me if I wear jeans and flip-flops? Is there coffee up to my standards? Can I take it into worship with me? But on a more serious note, one of the major things that informs people's decision in looking for a place to worship is the music. Because there's something about music, if you're into music like I am, that makes our faith relatable and in a plain sort of way. It's something that often can capture the essence of who God is and our beliefs without us really having to think too hard about it. Think about those moments when you are worshiping here in this space, and, and many of us respond differently, but sometimes I just stand there and I find my, my eyes are closing for some reason because there's something convicting about that experience that moves me in such a way. And whether it's the lyrics or whether it's the sound, there's something about it that reminds me that my faith is just as much about what I'm feeling as it is what I'm thinking. The Wesley brothers, John and his brother Charles, were very intentional about making faith both plain and accessible to anybody. In other words, somebody could come across it and understand it without having to get too technical. John Wesley was even timid about mentioning the word Trinity because he figured if he tried to explain it too much, he would lose people. He said, I believe in it, but if we get too bogged down in the details of what the Trinity is, we might scare people away. But one of the greatest things the Wesleys did was they wrote hymns. More particularly, Charles wrote hymns that captured the essence of what it meant to have a living, breathing faith. This is a United Methodist hymnal, and you're not going to see these in your chairs, but this was the work of the Wesley brothers. They wrote many hymns, uh, and they're not the only ones who wrote hymns that are contained in this collection, but this was a very important resource to them and how they lived out their faith. And I want to read you what John Wesley wrote as an instruction before anyone were to pick this up and sing a hymn from it. This is kind of cool and funny. He says, sing lustily and with a good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. But lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of its being heard than when you sung the songs of Satan. And what I love about that is he truly wanted followers of Jesus to be convicted by the things they were saying the things that they believed. You know, many of us grew up in churches where we perhaps were told how to memorize John 3.16 or the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed, 
But Wesley wanted people to move beyond just the saying of it. His question was, how are people actually living into those words that they're saying? When we say, I believe in the resurrection and the life, what does that look like in my own faith journey? Because for Wesley, theology is a lived exercise. Our understanding of God is dynamic and active and always raises questions of how we are living out our beliefs in a practical way. How are we taking what we've discerned from the scriptures and what we've learned and actually putting it into practice? I alluded to the Wesley's passion with music, and I want to share with you a pet peeve of mine as a pastor. There's always this temptation that the day after Thanksgiving, we like to jump all the way to Christmas, right? I'm guilty of it too. But there's also this season that comes before Christmas that lasts four Sundays. What is it? Advent, right, this season of expectation and anticipation. And what's beautiful about the hymnal and the Wesley songs is that they capture the breadth of our salvation story. So instead of jumping to away in a manger on the day after Thanksgiving, there are songs that also capture that anticipation and that holy pondering. There are two hymns that Charles Wesley himself wrote. One of them is probably less familiar to you, and one of them is familiar to you. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus is a very beautiful Advent hymn. And what I love about it is it talks about some of the writings of the Old Testament prophets, the ones who said that there would be this child who would one day free God's people from bondage to the powers and principalities of this world. It talks about that expectation. It talks about that anticipation. And then if you fast forward to Christmas, you have the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, a Charles Wesley hymn that reminds us of a God who dwelt among us in human flesh, a God who is both fully human and fully divine. And so there's something beautiful in the way that music, in this example, can capture what we understand about a God who we expect and then who comes to inhabit a stable in human likeness. Why else is a faith of the heart important? Because a faith of the heart is a disposition toward a God of prevenient grace. And you may be like, what does that mean? Prevenient grace is a grace that comes before it's the grace that God uses in love and mercy to touch our hearts before you and I are ever capable of responding in faith. It's the grace that God extends to an infant when they are baptized, when they are unable to respond affirmatively on their own, but because God's grace is so sufficient, it surrounds that child and love and concern so that one day that child can be nurtured and built up in the faith. One of my favorite stories in scripture is how Jesus engages with the young people, the children. In Mark, you may recall this story. People were bringing little children to Jesus in order that he might touch them. And the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not stop them, 
For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Jesus is speaking from a place of love, but also a space of invitation. Jesus is saying that my grace is even sufficient to you who may not be as mature as your parents or the adults around you, but there is a place in my presence. I'll give you a more contemporary example. Whenever we gather for Holy Communion, we gather at what we call an open table. And we believe that table is open because one of the things that struck Wesley was this idea that no matter who you were, when you approached the table of the Lord and received the gifts of God's grace through the bread and the cup, that moment was like a conversion experience. It was like an awakening. It was like a transformation that even the youngest child could experience if their heart was open to loving Jesus. Because that was what John Wesley believed was important about God's grace, was that even the youngest in our midst even those who may not be, because of their ability, able to respond for themselves if their heart was open to Jesus and they loved Jesus, they could receive that grace. And so that's why when we talk about a faith of the heart, it's about that radical openness to a God who is always doing a new thing. But I want to remind us that it's important we don't completely let a faith of the heart be in isolation. Because sometimes what happens is we can come to church, we can hear a good message, hear some good worship music, and it makes us all feel good inside in our hearts, but then we leave and we don't do anything else with it. We become complacent, and we become hesitant to change. And so how do we put a faith of the heart in tandem with how we reason and how we think critically about what it is that we believe. A faith of the heart welcomes spiritual pruning. Now, for some of you, that word pruning may strike you peculiar because it's not a word we commonly associate with ourselves, but I think it's a very biblical word to think about when we talk about growing in our faith. If somebody were to come up to you and ask you the question, Sarah, how is it with your soul? You may initially have some trepidation. You may shudder. You may be like, wait, you're asking me to be vulnerable? You're asking me to tell you all there is to know about my faith? Or maybe some of my doubts? But that was the question that was at the core of Wesley's small groups. He called them societies they asked each other that very question because they believed that space of growth was important in their edification, in their building up of their faith. They were to ask each other that question. They were to give the space where they could admit to where they perhaps strayed away from God's love and God's grace because there was no fear in those spaces that they would be criticized or judged. You know, it's a question that harkens back to some of the most intimate moments in Scripture where God and humankind are engaged in conversation and prayer with one another. You know, 
we're often tempted to put King David on a lofty pedestal. But we know if we've done our Bible study that David was not perfect by any means. David had his share of flaws. And in perhaps what's one of the most powerful but equally painful confessions David makes to God, he says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Think about the way that our faith necessitates accountability. You know, when we belong to a faith, we belong to a faith with others in the body of Christ, and so accountability is inherent to how we are growing in that faith. In other words, we don't do this faith thing in isolation or by ourselves. It requires the speaking into of others. It requires that mutual building up, that mutual pruning, that mutual edification. And so when that question, how is it with your soul, is asked, you may say, you know, today I didn't attend upon the things that God has given me as much as I could have. Perhaps I should be praying more frequently. Perhaps I should be engaging in God's word with more regularity. And how will you hold me accountable to that? And you have to think that this was pretty radical in Wesley's time because there were others, particularly the Calvinists, the people who would evolve into the Presbyterian church, who believed that these questions didn't really need to be asked because some were already predestined for eternal salvation and others were not. So why were these questions even valid ones to be asking? Was there even room to change and to adopt new behaviors? A faith of the heart invites a degree of self-examination. It's sort of like that uncomfortable, introspective look into a mirror, where you might be asking yourselves, where are some things in my life where I can change? And what can I do without? Are there places where I need to make some adjustments? Are there places in my life where I need to make some changes to glorify God. And so that space of accountability was important for Wesley. But let's talk about a faith of the head and what I mean by that. Because Wesley believed one did not have to check his or her brain at the door when it came to understanding God. For faith does not negate the gifts of human curiosity or intellect for that matter. You know, Wesley was reforming the church in the time of the Enlightenment, this time in history where advances in the philosophies and the sciences and the arts and literature were becoming very intriguing to different people, and in particular, different leaders in the faith. And Wesley was intrigued by the way that he could have disciplines in conversation with each other that didn't necessarily have to be solely theological. But he would ask questions as to how things like the arts and literature could inform his understanding of Scripture, of God's revelation in Christ Jesus. 
He wasn't afraid to broach things like the historical context surrounding a passage that may have challenged him. In fact, in a preface to some of his sermons, he wrote this statement. He said, is there a doubt concerning the meaning of what I read? Does anything appear dark or intricate? I then search after and consider parallel passages of scripture. If any doubt still remains, I consult those who are experienced in the things of God, and then the writing whereby, being dead, they yet speak. Wesley believed that our human reason required a deeper interpretive lens when it came to approaching God's word. Now, this is pretty cool. So our Wesleyan roots go back to their most primitive form in campus ministry. And you may be thinking, wait a minute, the Wesleyan movement didn't evolve out of a high steeple church with pews and high vaulted ceilings? No. It started on a college campus at Oxford with books, professors, classrooms, students, and occasionally a high vaulted ceiling, depending on where you were. But the reality was Wesley truly believed that if the movement was about reforming the church and spreading scriptural holiness to reform the nation, then it had to begin somewhere beyond the local church. And he felt that the seedbed of academic learning was a great place for it to perpetuate, a great place for it to get its start. Think about the ways that theology and education were paramount to Wesley. You know, his mother, Susanna, was very intent on the education of young people, not just in their basic knowledge of ABC's math and literature, but also their faith and their theology. And that evolved over time, so we start seeing the establishment of schools, seminaries, to train pastors for the office of pastor that are Methodist institutions. Wesley Seminary, right in downtown Washington, is one of them. Candler School of Theology at Emory University, Duke Divinity School. And even beyond seminaries, there were schools, liberal arts schools, many of which are in Virginia, that are Wesleyan institutions because they gave access to students to take coursework in biblical studies, in some of the ancient languages like Hebrew and Greek. Some of you may have been or know people who've gone to Shenandoah University. Emory and Henry, Randolph-Macon, Virginia Wesleyan, those are all Wesleyan schools founded in the name of the Wesleyan movement. And in some of our more public, larger universities, we have what are called Wesley Foundations at Virginia Tech and UVA and James Madison and others, where people are in intentional community together, developing and growing in their faith in the model that Wesley promoted. Now, it was a wise choice for him to make because he believed students were more inclined to use reason in how they made sense of God and God's revelation in Scripture. But we have to define what reason is. And so here's kind of a working definition of reason. Reason is the manner in which what we know about the world around us can help vivify or shed light on our beliefs and approaches to interpreting Scripture. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, I have to give you this disclaimer. Wesley never negated Scripture's primary importance in theology. He believed that Scripture was always primary because in Scripture, he believed one could find everything there needs to know 
to be known about our salvation. It contained everything that was necessary. But he did not believe we could just take Scripture at first hand without considering the things that we know and the traditions and the writings that have gone on before us. You know, he would look at things like the Apostles' Creed as an example where tradition could help illuminate our Scriptures. Things like that. Another example is this. Wesley was leading this movement in a time where slavery was still being practiced. And you may not have known this, but Wesley was a very staunch abolitionist. Wesley was a very premier advocate against the slavery movement. So much so that he believed it was because of his understanding of God's goodness and how God creates each of us in the divine image that clashed with certain verses that affirmed the practice of slavery. And so here's what he had to say in response to that. He said, If therefore you have any regard to justice, render unto all their due. Give liberty to whom liberty is due, that is, to every child of humankind, to every partaker of human nature. Let none serve you but by his own act and deed, by his own voluntary choice. Away with all whips, all chains, all compulsion, be gentle toward all, and see that you invariably do unto everyone as you would do unto you. Not only was Wesley's heart informing this belief, but also his ability to reason and think and draw upon his experiences in light of his convictions. A more comical example is that Wesley was fascinated by discoveries in human anatomy and the sciences, even so much so that he believed there was a holy way of taking care of one's body and soul, that it was important as we reflected God's presence in our lives. So he suggested things that some of us to this day practice that he thought were ways of holy living. He said, you should never sit down too long at your place of work. And now you can go into a corporate office building and 90% of the people are standing up here, right? A more comical one is he believed, and bear with me, if you have a common bowel obstruction, place a live puppy on your stomach and let it play. I asked Dr. Jeff at the last service if that was legit, and he laughed. But, but he was fascinated by the way faith could be called into practice and in tandem and in conversation with some of the common disciplines that were finding discoveries at that time and place. But here's the catch. You know, there was a catch with the heart leading us to too much complacency. The catch with knowledge is sometimes we let knowledge be our definitive and sole response around God particularly when things happen around us in our world that challenge our understanding of God or suggest to us that God may not be at work in a particular situation, and often that's to our detriment or the detriment of others. And so here's the, the danger in relying solely on knowledge. It's that we cannot allow knowledge to become a source of unbridled power. If we let knowledge do the talking and not also the heart, there's a tendency we have to forget about a God of grace. You know, there's a very uh, particular passage in Corinthians that I love where Paul is writing to the church, and he gives the, him, the people there this encouragement. 
He says, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. There's something to be said about a knowledge rooted in love. How many times have you received constructive feedback, but never felt like the person truly was there for you and to build you up? We think about the rich young ruler example Pastor John talked about a few weeks ago, where Jesus didn't speak to the guy in a condescending tone. He spoke from a place of love. Yes, I think you need to reconsider how you are living out the gospel, but I'm not saying that because I don't care about you or I don't believe that you can do that. And then there are times when knowledge can be used to objectify or victimize groups of people if we are not careful. You may have seen in the news this past week that a pretty controversial preacher lambasted women in ministry because he believed God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Go home, is what he said. And the challenge to that is this. This man was purely operating off what he perceived to be complete and utter knowledge about God. He took a piece of scripture out of context and without regard to the entire breadth of scripture to tell somebody that their call was invalid. And what Wesley believed was that you can't disrupt somebody's call. When somebody is called by God, they are moved in such a way and, and, and he also believed that you have to look at the breadth of Scripture and see that it wasn't just men leading the church. There were women in positions of power and authority leading the early church. Heck, the first person to proclaim the resurrection was a woman. And Wesley had this to say about applying reason with the heart. He said, let all you that have it in your power assert the right which the God of nature has given you. Yield not to this vile bondage any longer. You as well are rational creatures. You were made in the image of God. You are equally candidates for immortality. You too are called by God. And so knowledge, or what we understand to be knowledge, always has to be tempered with the heart, always has to be tempered with our experiences and our feelings around how we understand God. But there are times where we remember that God's infinite goodness and God's infinite majesty will never fully be captured in one single definition or explanation. But for me, that's the beauty and the mystery of who God is. One of my favorite passages in the Psalms about God and knowledge is Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Knowledge will never 
fully capture the fullness of God. But there is the knowledge and trust we have that our God is always pursuing us. Our God is always after our own hearts, even before we are prepared to respond in faith. And while that may not be complete and absolute knowledge of who God is, it is an awareness and a confidence. And I don't know about you, but it's a confidence that keeps me going forward. An awareness that God is always after my heart. And when I respond in faith and experience, I can truly allow that relationship to grow. Amen? Let's pray together. God, you who are in and of all things around us, we give you thanks for the many opportunities we have to worship and experience you, whether it's in our study of your word, whether it's in the singing of praises to you. We come to those places, not just with the feelings inside, but also our ability to think about what those feelings are and how they translate into the way we follow you. God, be with us in our weeks ahead as we seek to live out this gospel life, informed by our head and our heart, not one without the other, but in harmony with each other. Amen. At this time, I'll invite our ushers to come forward as we have the opportunity to give back to God through our tithes and our offerings.